Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. I am Teresa. And today we're going to be talking about a film that, despite the title, is not a holiday film. <laughs> Antlers. <laughs> oh, no reindeer in this one. No reindeer. Oh, boy. I have to admit that when I first heard, oh, Guillermo del Toro is involved in a film called, a horror film called Antlers, I was like, well, obviously this is some kind of Krampus situation. <laughs> and this is not that. There's not even any deer in it. No. Nope. Zero deer. No uh, horned animals. Other than... Yeah. The the uh, aforementioned antlers. Yes. <laughs> um, so, as, as we get into the movie, I do just want to say, like, up front, I know we put a, a content warning at the start of the podcast, but this film in particular deals with some pretty heavy topics alongside the horror. It's one of those films where you find yourself asking throughout... Is the supernatural mythological creature scarier or is real life scarier? Definitely. Um, this film deals with abuse, uh, very specifically child abuse, uh, a lot of addiction, um, poverty. Um, you're really seeing a, a community that is that is struggling and sort of the human results of that. So just be aware of that going into this film. Definitely. Really, the, uh, the whole... <laughs> The whole movie is kind of an allegory for abuse in general, but yeah. yeah. Um, who is, who's in this movie, Juliet? We've got Carrie Russell as Julia. Jesse Plummins plays Paul, her brother, who is the sheriff of our small Oregon town. Uh, we have a couple of young actors, Jeremy Thomas, uh, who is our young lead, Lucas Weaver. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time with him. Uh, likewise, Sawyer Jones plays Aiden Weaver, his younger brother. Graham Greene gets some high billing in all of the promotional materials. Is not in the movie as much as I would expect. We'll touch on that a little more. Uh, we also see Scott Hayes and Rory Cochran in the film as well. Awesome. Awesome. So, yeah. Heavy, definitely dreary, bleak movie just from the get like as soon as we open in this movie it is just absolutely bleak and it never really lets up <laughs> it doesn't um this film is based on a short story by nick and tosca called the quiet boy and we sort of open on this town in oregon it's um it's a post-industrial town uh coal mining seems to have been their main industry Although this is set in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, I felt an affinity to that kind of place and that post-industrial kind of uh, cloud that can hang over a place. You know, uh, here in Ohio, we're Rust Belt, so our industry was automobiles, and we lost that. Our community is coming out of it, but we've seen what that does to a place, so it felt very relatable in that way, though maybe not the fictional world I felt like diving into, admittedly. <laughs> no, I, I mean, also a place that is very clearly, um, it has replaced its main industry of coal mining with uh, drugs yeah. and with the people who are unemployed um, from that main industry being um, addicted to prescription medicine as well. Um, there are several scenes where you see people waiting in line, waiting in a long line at a recovery center, which is, the shot was kind of weird because it made you think that there are people standing in line for an ice cream place. And I was like, man, what kind of ice cream is it? And then you're like, oh no, wait, those people are waiting to get into a, a recovery center yeah, to wean I'm, themselves I'm off of. A methadone clinic, yeah, essentially. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. This is something that we definitely have experienced in, like, southeastern Ohio. The opioid... I mean, Montgomery County was huge for the opioid epidemic, too. Um, but southeastern Ohio definitely got hit in much the same way. Like, a rural community, um, not really close to really big cities or anything like that. Kind of forgotten. And uh, lack of help. It's interesting. I would be, I'd be interested to hear from 
other folks. So listeners from other communities let us know, like, I am so keyed into that, in part because of my job and because of living here. I couldn't not see that. Like, immediately that line you're talking about, I was like, oh, that's a methadone clinic. Like, oh, there are all these probably more subtle to people who don't live in a post-industrial community um, that's been ravaged by addiction. Um, So I would be curious to see how those things played for people from other places. But for me, it was like so in my face. Yeah. Another thing that you notice, there's no new cars. Nobody has a new car. Yep. Everybody's got an old Chevy or an old Ford. Um, It's definitely not an affluent area, not an area that has a lot of car dealerships. Um, most of the people who are outside the methadone clinic definitely look like if they weren't actively strung out, look like they had become addicted in the way that so many people do. They were injured and then could not wean themselves off of pain meds. And also when you have removed your, um, your purpose, your job, your reason or your ability to keep your kids and your family safe and secure and fed you can definitely fall into a well of depression. And the way that the film is shot definitely makes you feel like you are right there with them. Our main character, Carrie Russell, she's just come back from California. And we definitely get the impression that she has struggled with addiction, but I think hers was more alcoholism. Yeah. Okay. Um, she And not to say that uh, that addicts don't struggle with all forms of addiction, but... Um, her per- It seemed like her particular issue was alcohol. She comes home. Her father has recently died to be with her brother, who still lives in her childhood home. And um, there's definitely some complex things happening in that family. Um, between her and her brother, there's a lot of heavy, unsaid words between the two of them sister trying to make amends for years being gone and Jesse Plemons being worn down. At, at least that's the impression that I got of Paul um, just worn down, accepting of everything because he can't, he does not have the fight left to push back against those things. It's interesting with several of the characters we see in this community again, very relatable is that Paul is the sheriff of the town Mm -hmm. and Julia, the sister says pretty early on in the film, she's like, Oh, I can't believe you ran for sheriff. And he's just like, well, nobody else was going to do it. Yeah. And you kind of get that same vibe from the school principal Mm -hmm. as well. Just kind of this, like not even being noble about it. Not like I'm here to save my town, but like to keep the bare minimum of life and society functioning, I'm doing this job, but I'm just as tired as everybody else. Yeah. There are a lot of times in the movie where our characters basically, you you have such an epidemic of drugs happening in this town that you have characters saying this nasty, terrible stuff is happening. Um, kids are basically gophering drugs for their parents Parents are keeping their children out of school so that they don't smell like meth in class. And the people in charge in this town are so weary and so tired. And there's just so much of it that they can't possibly go after all of them. So when Carrie Russell's character brings to them this case of Lucas, uh, one of our main characters, and a phenomenal job by him, like... I, rarely do you see a child actor actually make you feel uncomfortable on yeah. screen. Um, and not in a way like he's evil or messed up, but that he is grieving and abused. And you really feel it. And it's partially his physicality. He's very thin. You can see it. there's a scene where you see his rib cage. His eyes are very large in his head. And it makes you feel uncomfortable because you're like, I can see that this child has been neglected. But when Carrie Russell brings this first to her brother, the closest person that she has to talk to in this town, he's like, yeah, I picked up his dad like a bunch of times, but just never sticks. Guess there's nothing I can do. And then she brings it later to the principal after this and says, hey, 
what can we do? You know, he's making these drawings. They're very disturbing. I can see the signs of abuse. The principal's like, I'll try and get over there when I can. And it it was so frustrating because obviously as, as the viewer, you can tell this is wrong. This is bad. Somebody needs to intervene on behalf of this kid. But instead, they they're just they have to throw their hands up because they're like, well, then I just have to go to every kid's house. I'd have to do this for every family and I just can't. It's so it's really frustrating and like kind of takes it out of you. The interesting thing about the principal is it's not even in a callous way no. that she's like, it's not like she's like, oh, I just don't have time or I'm too good to do this. It's like, we are a community in crisis and I am just trying to hold it together as best I can. And I'm one person and we're under-resourced. Definitely. That's a, a huge theme throughout yeah. the movie is just trying to barely hold it together. Lucas actually, our, our, uh, I would say he's probably the main character, at least one of the main characters. Yeah, definitely. Um, some really horrific, terrifying stuff happening to him. And he's just trying to hold it together. Just trying to make it from one day to the next. And somehow still making it to school. And yeah. like, maybe he's not doing the assignments as written. But he's trying. He's trying yeah. to do it. Man, I'm just recalling after the movie. I'm feeling like, God, I gotta go have a shower. <laughs> I know. <laughs> just feeling like icky about the world and icky yeah. about society and like what happens to kids and stuff. So even his father, who is interesting because is is and isn't the villain, mm-hmm. um, is a villain but a victim in Mm -hmm. multiple ways for both characterizations Mm -hmm. even his father i feel like would fall under that just trying to hold it together like his arc throughout the film which is one of the more horrific arcs definitely is all his whole thing is tied into just trying to hold it together yeah um, and and trying to lean on his far too young son, Lucas, to help him hold it together. Right. With horrific consequences. Yeah. So we we start, we go to the end, the entrance of a coal mine. Um, he leaves, the, the father leaves Aiden in the truck. Um, he goes into this coal mine where we find out there's a meth lab. His partner's down there. They're in this meth lab. Um, and when he comes out of this lab, he hands his son, Aiden, meth, which is like, you know, but there seems to be a loving relationship between the two of them. And like, he's just trying to hold, like, he's trying to hold the fort down. There's no mom in this situation. His wife has died. And we're not really sure. I don't think they say it out loud how. Right, yeah. I don't know if it was an overdose or if she got sick, because Lucas just says that she's sick, but he also references his dad as being sick in a very different way. And then Aiden wanders down into this mine where some terrifying stuff happens. We don't, we get like really brief flashes of it, but we don't know exactly what happens. We come back to Lucas, who is the eldest of the two brothers. Aiden's probably four or five. At maybe kindergarten age. Uh, yeah, I think they set him up as like old he should enough. be. He should be in school. Right. We established that that he definitely should have been in some kind of school, mm-hmm. um, at most first grade, but probably kindergarten. Yeah, and then Lucas is in probably like third or fourth grade. He's certainly not old. So he's 12. Oh, yeah. But he seems like he's a young 12. He certainly looks. He looks, he he, looks young. Yeah. And let's see, based on the material they were doing in the class, 12 years old, maybe fifth grade. Yeah, like fifth or sixth grade. Yeah. Yeah. I don't don't think sixth. Because also it could have been a situation because I think based off of his age, he probably should have been in seventh grade, but... This also seems like a situation where he's probably not getting a lot of, like, really good um, learning in. And we find out it's because of his horrific home life. Um, so he's maybe he's been held back a couple That's years. That's possible, too. Yeah. Um, because if there's elementary school at the school, then he can't be in sixth grade or higher. Right. Um, because that, that would probably be middle school. But 
So Carrie Russell's come home to kind of try and make amends with her brother and also face a life that she's been running away from and also using alcohol to cope with, which is that her father had abused her. And there are some pretty graphic depictions of sexual abuse, which is especially bad because it's a child. That was kind of hard to watch, um, for sure. And uh, definitely something that sticks with Carrie Russell's character with Julia um, throughout the movie. You can see she, this is why she's latched onto Lucas And I'm sure that there are other people in her class that are struggling, but it's most obvious that Lucas is, he's drawing pictures, he's writing very sad stories, he's not paying attention in class, Um, he's coming to school dirty, he's not going home, he's killing animals, all very classic signs of somebody who's very troubled. So it's, that's kind of why we have those really graphic depictions is so that we have an understanding why Carrie Russell immediately comes on to this kid. And it also kind of sets the stage for the back and forth between her and her brother and why that relationship is so fraught. She was able to escape and Paul stayed and he has weathered it, weathered it out. He's not been in sunny California, you know, on Pleasure Island, basically. I mean, that's what it seems like to them, of course, is that she's escaped and she's lived in California and lived the good life. And they've all been there with meth and opioids and the mind closing. So just thinking about this now, the another theme that I think kind of ran through that is the sins of the father becoming the sins of the son. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's happening in this movie and kind of driving force and why Lucas is so troubled or even more troubled than he would have been prior to this, is what happens is the dad encounters a Wendigo in this meth lab cave system mine. And in this particular rendition, the Wendigo kind of lays a seed inside of him. And that seed is growing and he has to eat flesh. It seems like carry on. He's kind of like a scavenger in that way. So the myth of the Wendigo is an American indigenous myth, although this this is definitely a stylized version of this myth and also pulls from some other mythology, too. There's a little bit of um, like Greco-Roman mythology yeah. in the eternal hunger and the curse of the family is almost like the Tantalus myth. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so the father is, while he's enduring this Wendigo seed, he is... Always hungry, but never satisfied, which is where the the Tantalus myth comes in from Greek mythology. Um, And there's kind of a version of that in the indigenous myth, but this is definitely taking from many different uh, mythologies for this particular story. It seems like whoever has that Wendigo seed can also make those close to them sick. Like, I don't... I don't know if Aiden just had a different version of it, or if it was by proxy, or, like, because he was close to it. I didn't get that exactly. Or or maybe he was just later, like, it took longer for that to gestate within him because maybe he wasn't fed as much. I wasn't really sure what that was because, I mean, eventually he is uh, ascending to that. But... Yeah, that was a little unclear. Yeah, because uh, the way I took it was sins of the father, the father who had created all of this, caused all of this to happen is passing it down to his son. Although maybe not directly, but he is the reason why Aiden was there in the mine, in the Mm -hmm. meth lab. Otherwise, Aiden would not have been there to have received this. Right. Um, Also, the sins of the father uh, in um, Paul and Julia's dad, also kind of passing down to his son, although Paul was never going to pass it on to anybody else because he didn't have a kid. Right. So the thought that he was never going to pass that down because he had kind of stopped that. So um, to go back to Lucas and Aiden's dad, he's got this one to go see. He's eating. He's not satisfied. But the really kind of poignant part of that is that he is, he knows that he's sick. He knows that he wants to hurt his son, but he protects him, even right. in that moment. 
he puts locks on the doors and makes it so that he can't do it. And even though, even when he's like going down to his basest form right before he's going to metamorphosis into this, this horrendous beast, he's still protecting his son and still taking the food away from him and making sure that he's not injured in the course of his feast. It was almost like poignant to see that happening, even though what's happening to his dad is really gross and very terrifying. But yeah, that was a a really poignant moment for me to watch. It was almost kind of like heartwarming a little bit, but not really. (laughs) Yeah, it was, um, it was certainly disturbing, but also, I mean, I think going back to the whole, like everybody is doing the best they can in this movie is that you know, we get this, we get this very interesting kind of full picture of the father, Frank. Mm -hmm. Frank is cooking meth. Frank is a drug dealer. Frank has his uh, tiny son gophering drugs for him. He also obviously cares about his kids a lot. Mm -hmm. Like that's, again, it's it's a both and uh, Mm -hmm. throughout this whole film. At first, when we're sort of introduced to Frank's um, current situation up in the attic, it's a little unclear, like, is he possessed? Is he evil? Mm -hmm. Is he, is Lucas protecting himself Mm -hmm. and keeping his dad up here out of love for his father? And, And yes, that's true, but... We come to find out through a flashback that the whole attic situation is Frank out of love for his children. Mm -hmm. And eventually Aiden has to go up with him. But even that is seen as a loving relationship to the extent that Frank has the capacity to still be loving toward his son as he's undergoing this horrific transformation. Yeah. And also seeing the scenes where Lucas is taking care of his brother that was like heartbreaking. I know. <laughs> I know. Truly heartbreaking. Oh, it was rough because Aiden is very small. He's yeah. so small and you can tell something's wrong. He's got the veins, which is kind of an indication that 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 he is sick. Um but it's not really progressing as fast as his dad's and Lucas is still trying to talk to him and say, "Hey, it's okay. Like I'm here for you. I'll make sure that you're fed." But at night, Aiden sits at the bottom of the stairs at the door and he cries and says he's so hungry and Lucas cries. And so he has to put on these big headphones and just cry himself to sleep. He's all by himself. No, mom, he can't talk to anybody about this. So he's just trying to, he's trying, he's really trying to take care of his little brother. I think his dad is secondary. He still wants to take care of his dad. But I think his little brother is, like, he's trying to protect him as best as he can. And I think that that was a really good turn of events between Lucas and Aiden and what happened with Julia and Paul. Because Julia, there's a really kind of rough scene in the hospital where Julia's like, you don't understand what happened to dad, with me and dad. You don't understand that I had to take care of it. Like, I had to please him. And Paul's like, you don't have any idea what happened to me. You left. You have no idea what happened to me after you left. And it kind of like clicks for her. Like, oh, I don't know. I did leave. I did not take care of you. As where, even at his own peril, Lucas wants to take care of Aiden. And another kind of heartbreaking scene between the two brothers, Lucas nearly kills himself, nearly gives his own life to protect Aiden from Julia trying to help him. But I don't want to, I don't want to go that far down the road because I feel like we have more to talk about in the middle before we get to the end there. (laughs) Should we go ahead and talk about kind of the big elephant in the room about this film? Okay. Yes. All right. Let's do it. Let's let's do it. So um, as I mentioned, as we've talked about a little bit, this film deals with a variation of the myth of the Wendigo, which is a traditional American indigenous mythological creature. Um, this film has one indigenous actor, and he has a very, very, 
very small role. Despite getting pretty high billing and being featured pretty prominently in the trailer, and the trailer, not that we're reviewing trailers, mm-hmm. but the trailer really bugged me because it played um, a stylized version of traditional drumming and chanting as well as background music, uh, which, you know, if you're going to make that film where you're really honoring the myth. I'm looking at how to pronounce this because I don't want to mess it up, but... The beginning of the movie is a a poem, um, a Native American poem, and it's read in Ojibwe. It's read in that language, although it's printed on the screen in English. So that's kind of like where we start the movie, is this little blurb about the Wendigo, about a skinwalker. I don't even know if it's about the Wendigo. It could just be about a skinwalker. I can't remember. But that's how we set the scene. And Graham Greene is in this movie for all of, I think his last name is Stokes. I think his name is Warren Stokes in that. He's the former sheriff that yes. Paul took over for after he retired. He gets maybe three or four minutes in the whole movie. And really his role is to tell Paul and Julia about the Wendigo myth. So he like lives in a trailer on the edge of this lake and he brings out this big book of Native American legends and kind of is the guy that puts the pieces together for them. But that's it. There aren't any other characters, major, minor, extras, nothing that are indigenous people. So Juliet and I both came out of this movie thinking, this seems really disingenuous to have a movie based entirely on a Native American and, uh, well, a Native North American indigenous myth and only have one indigenous person in the entire movie as a representation. Also, and this is kind of minor, but the myth of the Wendigo is actually uh, like Central America, uh, Great Plains and uh, Great Lakes and Eastern North America, Eastern Canada and into like New York and Northeastern America, uh, United States. And this is set in Oregon. So they kind of like repurpose all this stuff. So like Juliet said before, it's kind of an amalgamation of multiple different things, but it did really seem like ins- insensitive and kind of insincere to only have one indigenous person and be like, here's your guy to explain the, and explain to, the myth. And exactly. And to have that one indigenous person take on that very archetypal role that, um, people of color in general, but especially indigenous people play in films, which is, I am the wise person to whom you go to find out the information about the secret or the mythological or the supernatural thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the white folks are going to go on with their their story and their drama and all of that. Right. Um, And that was really disappointing to me, too, because, again, not that I'm here to judge a trailer, but the trailer certainly led you to believe that um, this was going to be a little more involved with the myth. That, yes, you you might have uh, a story centered on white characters, but the line they chose to kind of highlight in the trailer was one of Graham Greene's lines, it's an exchange he has uh, with Paul. And, and you know, Paul's like, well, the Wendigo is a mythological creature. And Graham Greene's character says, to you, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, to sort, sort of emphasize that, yes, uh, what is mythology to some people is um, truth and reality and heritage to others. And I was like, okay, all right. Yeah. <laughs> but no, they didn't they didn't deliver on that at that all. That was basically it. That was yeah. basically the start was and that the line. end. The start and the end of that conversation was just that. And it was it really felt like it could have been about any <clears throat> about any character. It could have been any sort of mythological being. It could have been a uh, demon. Yeah. Random demon. Yeah. Like it seemed very token. Because there are also parts where um, we see um, in the, in the, like, cave, or not cave, um, the mine, where there are medicine bags hanging from the ceiling, which is supposed to be a protection, but that's it. Like, that's all. Graham Greene says, oh, these are for protection. 
And it's like, okay, so we have our one Native American man who's been on screen for about four and a half minutes at this point. He has explained the myth and unclouded the mystery. And then, oh, these are for protection. And that's all we get. I'm going to say something a little tricky here. Not that I am encouraging uh, films that capitalize on the pain of marginalized people. However, with the setup of this film in a post-industrial, poverty-stricken community, when you look around the United States, that is the case of so many groups of displaced indigenous populations in this country. Yes. They could have easily set this entire story on a reservation, for Mm -hmm. example, and told the same story of, of struggle, of poverty, of that juxtaposition of people just trying to make it and do the best they can under immensely difficult circumstances and a mythological creep. Like they could have they could have said it entirely in the world of the people whose myth they're using. Right. And they chose to set it in a completely white world. Right. Except for this one character. Yeah. And their mythological beast that they used. Um yeah, you're absolutely right. And then we could have had uh who people who are typically not featured in films, indigenous folks, um, they don't get a lot of a lot of screen time in movies. Um, a really good example of how to do this would be, there's a movie on Shudder. It's a Shudder original called Blood Quantum. And it's all about, it's a Native American zombie apocalypse, but Native Americans are immune to it. So after post-zombie apocalypse, it's like, they are the, you know, they are the ones that have to help. They are the ones who have to kind of take charge. That's an example of a movie doing it right. Right. And this movie, it just, it really felt like we're picking and choosing. We're pulling from Native American myth without giving enough um, credit towards Native Americans. Yes, we've got this beautiful um, reading at the beginning. Yes, we have one Native American character, but we're not getting anything else from it. So it really, it felt kind of hollow, especially because the movie's called Antlers. So you could have had anything. Yes, the Wendigo's covered in antlers, but you could have, you could have had anything. You could have had a completely original totally mythology and mythological beast and and we know uh, he he didn't write this he was an executive producer but like we know Guillermo del Toro is capable of doing this yes I mean look at Pan's Labyrinth you know uh, Pan's Labyrinth taking cues from all different mythologies um, and traditions and characters but was entirely original yeah and they could have done this with this easily yeah and and like even using the way that they built the monster in this one they could have used that and just didn't have to be a wendigo yeah could have been anything yeah um which speaking of that i'll use that as a nice segue to um talking about the transformation um of the father so the father, the seed grows and grows inside of him, and it looks like it's hot, like it's a coal burning inside of him. And when, unfortunately, the principal visits the house, which is completely unlocked, Lucas's father is <laughs> turning into, he's evolving into his final form. He's Pokemoning into his final <laughs> form. And he, it's terrifying. He, it literally bursts out of him and leaves his actual body like a shell, like a carapace from an insect. It's hollowed out. It's burned. It's unrecognizable. And the police find it and they're like, wow, what, what happened here? There's like, I can't even understand what happened here. And all of these cops, like, I don't want to say that they're bumbling because they're not really bumbling. But the cops are constantly just, like, flabbergasted. It's just going from one thing to the next, like, wow, I just don't know what's happening in my own city. <laughs> They're not bumbling necessarily, but maybe just, like, so colossally overwhelmed that they just can't even process what's happening. So the final form, final transformation of the father is just terrifying. You can see Guillermo del Toro's hand in Absolutely. that creature. Yeah, It's gross. 
it makes you feel icky. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely in line with some of his more terrifying characters. It's uh, <laughs> it's like I remember thinking this in one shot where I'm like, it's like a disgusting Muppet. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's something about the way it's the face was angled or something. I was like, oh, that is a gross Muppet. I know what you're talking about because I'm thinking of a puppet now and I can't remember what uh, it is. I think it's one of the Dark Shadows characters yes. because they've got the um, the very slim angular faces. Yes. So we don't get to see a lot of full-on shots of the monster, which is probably for budgetary constraints. <laughs> it looks really expensive. Um, but it brutalizes... It, basically, it's, its MO is it just tears into the fleshy bits of people. Yeah. So there's a lot of, like, bodies that they're finding that are missing, like, everything from their rib cage to the midway of their thigh. But everything else is fine. So a lot of very dead-on, unflinching shots of gore in this movie. Like, there's a scene in the corner where it just goes from this dude's face all the way down to his legs, and it's just a mess. Viscera. Very realistic. Um, We've got, like, fluorescent lights. And it's also kind of, like, maybe this is a comedy relief, but the coroner is also just like, I can't. I don't even know. Yeah, like, well... I don't even know what to yeah. say. <laughs> have no idea. I can tell you that this looks like a human bite on the arm. <laughs> but that's all I know. That's all. That's, that's as far as we're going. Yeah. I won't even speculate. No. No. As to what's happening. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the comic relief because <laughs> the guy's eyebrows basically are t- like on top of his head the entire time. He's just surprised and... He can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> He's just noped out. <laughs> oh, and I totally misspoke there. Dark crystal, not dark shadows. It's okay. I, I Mythological knew Muppets, not 70s vampires, <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> I, kn- I knew exactly what you were talking about. I just, I don't know why I thought. I was just like, yes, I'm with you. That's, that's the right thing. It's the, the one with the Muppets. <laughs> exactly. We, we were on the same page. Yeah. It's fine. But, you know, the coroner, honestly... Without all of the really, really depressing stuff, this is like an X-Files episode. Totally. Without the abuse, the addiction, the poverty, um, this would absolutely be an X-Files episode. (laughs) We're only on our third episode, and here we go. X-Files. Yeah. (laughs) Let me make everything into an X-Files episode. Here we go. You're totally right. You could absolutely, absolutely see Mulder and Scully, like, landing on in a helicopter and people are like oh there's a bunch of dead bodies and they're missing all their guts help us please and it's a wendigo yeah yeah but i feel like even that would have had a little bit more indigenous representation yes they <laughs> here i go they did a wendigo episode oh and yeah they did several other mythological episodes and i will not say that they got it right because mm-hmm. it was the 90s <laughs> But they definitely did more things with indigenous myth that had more indigenous characters and actors in more prominent roles okay, through, good. throughout that series. Good, good. Yeah, you're you're totally right. It absolutely would have been an X Files episode. <laughs> it did feel like one. But yeah, the the monster really terrifying, very brutal. We unfortunately have a um, kind of. He, I don't want to say he's bumbling, because I, I hate the bumbling cop trope. Um, I think that it's way overused. And like I said, not so much bumbling, but more just like completely overwhelmed. And just like um, Paul's partner, a sheriff's deputy, I can't remember his name, but he kind of sticks with them through the whole thing. Um, he's willing to come in the middle of the night and help him make sure that his sister is safe. And Lucas, who is now at their home... To make sure that the two of them are safe because they don't really know what's going on, but they know that it's really bad and dangerous. So probably a close friend, maybe a family friend, maybe a lifelong friend. But we unfortunately see some pretty brutal, um, this guy is gone. (laughs) He's dead. He's gone. And uh, Paul, we also see Paul kind of like sacrifice himself a little bit um, on behalf of Lucas and Julia so that they can stay safe or they can kind of get a head start. So the movie kind of leads us back to where it started. We go back to this mine. We go back to this meth lab. 
and we have the the dad who has already transformed but we also have Aiden who's followed him and he is very obviously getting ready to transform there's like this red glow inside of him he's making these real gross nasty cat hairball noises and you know what's coming and this really really heartbreaking scene where Julia has to fight the dad Wendigo and she wins and Lucas helps her because he knows he can't stop what's in his dad and he knows that his dad is dangerous and that he's gonna hurt him so they defeat that Wendigo then Aiden starts to transform and Julia is like oh hell no I gotta do this again And now it's a little boy and I have to kill this little boy because there's nothing I can do to stop it. Lucas puts himself physically in between Julia and Aiden to try and save his little brother. And it's just like, he knows what's happening. He, he obviously knows what's happening. He knows that Aiden is going to end up like his dad. And still he's standing in front of him and like trying to stop Julia. I mean, this kid is like, probably 65 pounds soaking wet, like easily movable, not a strong, physically strong child. And he's a child. And yet he's like, no, I can save him. I know that I can stop whatever's happening to him. I will do whatever it takes. And Julia's just like, you can't, you can't do it. I'm sorry. As much as you want to, it does not matter how much you want to save somebody There's a certain point when you can't, and I think that was kind of like her reckoning too, like with her dad. Mm -hmm. Because there's, I mean, even after all of her abuse, there's still definitely some complex feelings between her and her dad. And also understanding that Paul was with her dad for so long. So anyways, that was a very, very, very heavy scene to see Lucas still try to sacrifice himself for his brother even after all the things that have happened and all of the crap that he went through, killing animals, killing people, hiding bodies, that kind of stuff to feed them. So, woof. It was rough. (laughs) Yeah. This whole movie was was rough. And then even at the ending, I mean, (laughs) it was already kind of clear, you know, you get this shot of, like, Julia and Paul and Lucas standing over the water and you're like looking at three super damaged people and it's like okay how are they you know how are they going to move on from this how is this child like what shot does this child have at any sort of semblance of a normal life or growing beyond this and then, of course, we get the added little stinger that I I don't even know if I like it or not, because <laughs> the movie's already so depressing. But, like, oh, yeah, Paul's been windigoed. Yeah, he's been infected. Yeah. Uh, which, it kind of makes me think that if you've touched an antler or something like that, that that's how, um, that's how it gets transmitted, because he gets kind of gored in his yeah. shoulder. Yeah. But the other kind of stinger right before that is this kind like this really icky line where he where he asks Julia, "Would you be willing to kill something that you loved?" And then that's right. what happens, right? Because they acknowledge that Lucas might become a serial killer. He might yeah. actually be a serial killer because all of these terrible things have happened to him, and he is probably never going to emotionally recover from this. He's broken. Like, this kid has hollow eyes. If you didn't know that he was acting, you'd be like, this kid is scary. I don't know if I like it. Um, But yeah, he says, would you be willing to kill something that you love? Or, yeah, it's a question basically saying that. and, And then it's like he coughs and he's coughing up that nasty, icky black liquid that indicates that you're Wendigoed. So... Yeah, it's, uh, it's rough. And Julia is kind of playing the, like, the savior. She's trying to keep Lucas safe and protected, but it's also, like, how safe and protected can you possibly be? It just occurred to me that antlers is also the, the idea that, like, if you look at an antler, it is a branching thing. So... Oh, good call. Maybe that's part of it, too, is, like, the antlers of the Wendigo 
cause people to get infected with this, but also our choices and decisions and relationships branch and one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. So maybe, maybe the imagery is there. I don't know. I was just thinking about that just now, like, oh, antlers branch. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, um, the, the really, I thought personally, the entire movie was an allegory for child abuse, a more complicated allegory for child abuse. At, at, and you could even kind of roll the whole antlers thing into it, like the branching nature of abuse. Like yeah, absolutely. The Like the fruit of the rotten tree, you know, mm-hmm. one person starts it and then it passes along to another and it passes along to another and passes along to another person. And that's definitely happening over and over and over again in this. I mean, mythological creature aside, it's absolutely evident in this town that everybody is broken because of these rotten branches that are extending down through the through the townspeople and making it so that everybody's infected, really. So that's just one thing I thought of just now while we were talking. <laughs> well, are we ready for final thoughts? Or was that your final thought? <laughs> I-, I wish I had been clever enough to make that my final <laughs> thought, because that wasn't what like, I was thinking. Good? It was a good culmination. Um, another thing that was kind of subtle, but real quick that I wanted to bring up is that um, Paul definitely is self-medicating. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's taking prescriptions the entire time. And he, it looks like he's kind of taking stress medication. Um, like he's taking it as stressful situations arise. We don't know what he's taking, but it seems like he also might be falling victim to whatever is happening in this town where maybe he's over-medicating. Or self-medicating. Yeah, I definitely think you're right about that. Um, Like, it seems like no person has been left behind with whatever Mm -hmm. ailment. And sure, like, this being turns you into a monster. But on the other hand, like, just like any other influence in town, you know, if you're not uh, getting Wendigoed, then you're falling victim to meth or opioids or abuse because i don't think that they say one way or the other whether or not their uh julian paul's dad um is like on pills or anything like that just seems like he's a terrible person yeah they don't really get into substance or not and i think part of that is because it's through the lens of julia's childhood recollections so Mm -hmm. it's just more the horrific nature of the abuse yeah which i don't know maybe i don't know that they needed all that imagery to make that point quite frankly i definitely don't think so there's one one shot in particular that i there was a lot of it that was debatable i'm like they could have made the point without the imagery but there's one image in particular that i don't think needed to be in that movie there there are a few things that take me out of a movie faster than somebody like there's a couple of things but the one in particular is child sex abuse yeah when you could have when you could have shown or told or implied in a way that did not require you to show those yes. acts yeah um, that's a case where tell wins out of her show and i don't think that she necessarily needed to be sexually abused to for her to latch on to lucas it -hmm. could have been neglect it could have been that she was not fed or she was sent to her room without food for several days or maybe um her mom because i know this with her considering her age range Maybe her mom um, food shamed her or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And that's why she can see the signs of neglect in Lucas. The sexual abuse really made it tough for me to be able to understand why they would feature that in a movie when it could have been... Because, I mean, child abuse is terrible no matter what. And it can definitely be triggering. But that is pushing it to a whole different level. It didn't seem essential to the plot. No. Either. I don't. I, mean, I absolutely agree. You know, it's... You can argue up and down whether child sexual abuse as a, as a 
device and a plot, you know, for a character who's a survivor, whether whether or not those how how those stories should be told on film, sure. basically. But in this case, it wasn't necessary to the plot. There right. there were plenty of other ways they could have done it um, mm-hmm. that didn't require didn't require it at all, and certainly didn't require it to the level uh, with which they showed it. Yes. That was that was tough. Um, we already didn't feel very comfortable in the footing of this movie, and that kind of pushes it over over the top, over into a level that I don't think anybody was expecting. And considering the way that things went after the fact, it definitely felt um, forced. It felt like we are put into a situation where we're seeing this to just maybe to throw us off. And perhaps it was part of the original story. And maybe there's a little bit more essentiality in their original story where that becomes a necessary plot device, or maybe it's more of a crucial thing for the character's backstory in that story. Because unfortunately, when you're making an adaptation of a short story into a film, you just can't include everything. So maybe it was a little bit of a sloppy translation. But for me, Considering where we started and where we ended and knowing that that's kind of like a spike of like a gut punch, it feels like a low blow. Um, and, and all I can think about is what about other child sexual abuse survivors? What are they thinking when they see this? And what places does it take them that I cannot even fathom or access that pulled them out of the movie. Right, yeah, because it it certainly pulled me out of the movie. Um that that one scene in particular that I'm referring to that I feel felt like should have been cut. Um that pulled me right out of it for a few minutes just like wait, what? Like yeah. what did I just what did I just see? And so especially in a movie where the setup, the trailer, nothing about it leads you to believe that that's what you're getting into. And I mean that goes to the argument of like why content warnings are important, quite frankly. Sure. Um, yeah, for somebody who was going into this film as a survivor, having had that lived experience and not knowing that was coming, like, yeah, th- it's just really unfair on, yeah. the, on the part of the filmmakers. Um, yes, definitely. Um, also, the setup for that scene is rather mundane. It's Julia playing piano. Yeah. Which... To me, and I, I don't this could be just a me thing, but to me, somebody playing piano by themselves is supposed to be a comforting, relaxing, gentle, and enjoyable thing. Um, it's supposed to make you feel calm and warm and fuzzy and um, like you're relaxed and you're doing something, which, I mean, kind of effectively, they also make it messed up in audition. But um, in this particular movie, Julia is kind of like, finding herself in the keys and and relearning that muscle memory and then she's having these flashbacks these snaps back to that and paul snaps her out of it he touches her arm and scares scares the crap out of her but we don't have a good lead up to that part and we don't have a good kind of outro where she's able to process any of that so it feels abrupt and um honestly kind of harmful um, like I said, I'm f- fortunate I have not had any sort of child sexual abuse experience in my life or, or as far as I know, anybody that I know. Um, but I know that as a abuse survivor at all, that could be, that could just be so harmful. And I guess it's like sort of a broader discussion, um, whether or not there should be trigger warnings in a movie. I definitely think that it couldn't hurt to say, like, hey, this movie deals with... And you don't even necessarily have to go into detail. You could just say that this movie deals with complex abuse subjects. If you would like to know more about this before you watch this movie, maybe check out this website. Yeah, I would I would like to see in general because the MPAA does not do a good job of this because the MPAA is coming from a... Um, a sort of restrictive place, you know, uh, a place that it has more to do with, you know, censorship and pearl clutching and all of that. But I, I would right. like to see um, the industry develop something or maybe it's a part of IMDb or something 
where it becomes commonplace that if, you know, when you're releasing a trailer or information about a film, that there's just some place as part of, you know, the film website or whatever, where you can just kind of see what you're getting into and you can make a choice as a viewer. I mean, certainly that's where like the conservative Christian groups have it, have it on the rest of us a little bit because there are all of those like, you know, ridiculous sites that are like, you know, rating films for this, that, and the other um, to, to an extreme in my opinion, but um, a bit of helpful information to help viewers make the right choices for themselves or, or decide what and how they want to engage with things. Because, you know, and when we get to midsummer, certainly I want to talk about this more, but um, there is content for me in films that is triggering, but that I can engage with, mm-hmm. you know, where I'm like, if I know it going in, you know, and I'm like, oh, I want to see, you know, I still want to see that movie. Mm-hmm. Making the choice gives you some of the power back. Sure. Uh, but to be blindsided by something in a film completely takes your power away from you and can be really harmful. So I would just like to see uh, some of that power given back to people so they can make the right choices for themselves. And it's not to say that they won't watch it. Yeah. It's just that they'll know, like, what they're getting into. Especially because you do know that she's abused by this point. You do know that right. something terrible has happened to her through other flashbacks. This is a overhammered nail at this mm-hmm. point. We already know that she had hidden, uh, she was hidden, she was hiding under the stairs from her dad. She, we already know that she was locked away. We know that, you know, we do know that bad things have happened to her at the hands of her parents. We, we're aware of those things. And clearly they were bad enough to drive her from that home yes. and to contribute to addictive behavior. Yes. And abandoning somebody that she she does care for and love. Yeah. But on the other hand, when you sneak up on somebody with something like that, and actually, so IMDb does have a parent's guide. So I, I just quickly looked it up to see what it says. And for sex and nudity, it says none green so oh yeah wait a minute now so the Uh, the other things are um like the other categories are violence and gore profanity alcohol drugs and smoking and frightening and intense scenes i would also just like these things not to be framed as parents guides yes because what that does is it infantilizes people who adults who actually need this information to make good adult decisions for yeah. themselves. Right. Like, this goes beyond parents making decisions for their children. It's empowering adults to make decisions about the content they engage with. Right. And um, it's really kind of a byline under the frightening and intense scene section that there's uh, physical and sexual child abuse in the movie. And they say, some viewers may find this disturbing. And that's about as much as it says. Now, granted, this parent's guide is edited by IMDb users. So, I mean, take from that what you will. Yeah. And maybe some people don't feel like this is as um, intense or as important a thing to bring up as we particularly do. Because they can just put it from their mind. Um, But it was definitely something that made my skin crawl. And not something I felt was essential to the course of a movie just like any movie that has um, rape yeah. or uh, another weird thing for me is forced birth. Um, mm-hmm. um, so anything like that. Even movies that are relatively tame, like um, Room with Brie Larson. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, she's kidnapped and forced to give birth. I can't do it. And I would really like just maybe a little bit more sensitivity when it comes to um, reviewing movies like this. To just say, hey, um, yeah, there's some child abuse in this, and there's some sexual abuse in this, too. And just so that you know um, going in, if you don't want to watch the movie, okay. But don't, certainly do not, like what you said, do not spring that on your viewers. Even people who are maybe not triggered by that are certainly going to feel uncomfortable. And maybe um, maybe not able to receive your message afterwards, so... That's what I think. I, I know that there's a rise in in the industry, um, 
certainly on the writing side of things with um, folks who are now hired to read scripts to find these holes, to find to find things that might be triggering or might be racially insensitive or insensitive um, toward, toward any number of things. And it's not about censorship, but it's about, you know, making the writer's work the best it can possibly be um, so that as many viewers as possible can have a good experience with it and can see themselves in the work appropriately. Right. So I hope that perhaps with that trend, that that will eventually lead to some of that on on the viewer end as well. You know, we're also seeing things like intimacy coordinators coming in um, to the film industry, too. So perhaps this can be another new role. Yeah. Is uh, some kind of somebody make this some some programmer make this make this website <laughs> yeah uh, like and i'm i we're certainly not saying that this should be removed entirely from the movie no. but there are certainly ways to present somebody as being an abuse survivor um especially in such a graphic and um sexual way that don't have to show naked men or um men um fondling girls and yeah. that, I mean, I'm just going to say the quiet yeah, part out yeah. loud. It does not have to be like no. that. Um, that Because that especially, I mean, sure, is it um, explicit in the, like, in that it's showing, bearing skin? No. However, it is certainly explicit in that I think a lot of sexual abuse survivors would would have had similar experiences and that is what would make it so triggering um, to see something like that because we could have had her writing in a journal, um, or we could have had her talking to her brother and maybe even in euphemisms. Um, cause we have that scene with her brother where he, where she says satisfying their father, or, right? which I think is plenty. Yeah. That, that was, uh, perfectly clear. Yeah. So I, th- I don't think showing it is a good use of anybody's time. We know what's happening. We know that she's abused. We know even that she's sexually abused. We don't need to see it. That is not doing anybody any favors. No, it's really not. It's not driving your point home any more than just saying it. So, yeah. That was... That was rough. Yeah. Re-experiencing that movie made my, like, my chest tight. Yeah. (laughs) Now, towards the end. I'm going to have to go watch a comedy for a little while after this. I'm going to go binge some office, some of the office. But um, do you have any final thoughts? Um, I often talk about rewatchability in my final thoughts. I don't know that I need to see this one again. I'm not, I'm not like, I don't feel like I wasted my time. I'm not sorry that I saw it or anything mm-hmm. like that. But I also think, like, I'm good, you know? And and again, like, when we talk about Midsummer, there was, certainly after I saw that, I was kind of like, do I ever want to watch that again? And I've, I've come around to, like, really wanting to watch it again, but th- I just don't see that with this one. Yeah. Like, I'm good. I might read the short story just because I'm curious about how it translated. Ditto. But I don't need to see it. Yeah, I have a, t- a tab of actually open on my browser now so that I can remember to <laughs> read it because I actually am very curious myself. Um, for final thoughts for me, um, would love to see if there's any Hollywood executives that, you know, have tons of money listening right now. Please honor your indigenous characters and make sure yes. your representation is equal to the amount of marketing and mythology that you use. This movie should have featured a lot more indigenous characters. So I would really love to see that. Um, Also a little bit more sensitivity when it comes to abuse in filmmaking. Um, I also don't think I ever necessarily need to see this movie again. I think that it got a lot of technical strokes, right? Um, The monsters terrifying the gore. Great. Um, But yeah, don't think I'm ever going to see it again. Uh, very few movies have made me feel as bummed <laughs> as that movie has made me feel. And even recalling it with you just now. I mean, we saw it a week ago. 
and I feel bummed again. (laughs) So yeah, yeah. if that tells you anything, um, starts on a dour note, ends on a worse one. So yeah. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com, Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and on Twitter at Final Girls Pod. Our theme music is by House Ghost and available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And tell your friends about us. I'm Julia. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary.